you please uh, take your copies if you wish to, uh, to listen to God's word as I read just a few verses this morning. We're still in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. I'm going to read verses 37, 38, and 39 that conclude this chapter. I'd like to ask Tim Failer to please uh, beg God for his help in both the preaching and the hearing of his word. 2 Samuel. Chapter 13 at verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihur, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Let us pray. Amen. <clears throat> I didn't think to ask if there were any little people, but I don't see any that need to go downstairs. tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I think these words apply so much to David's life and especially this that we've been looking at these last several weeks beginning with his going up to the roof of his house and his voyeurism toward Bathsheba and the results of that. 
Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Those words were written by Sir Walter Scott, a poem I'm told titled Marmion. And strangely enough, or coincidentally enough, I'm told that this poem has to do with this nobleman by the name of Marmion and his lust for the wife of another man and evolving somehow or other my fact checkers in the assembly our historians our resident historians can correct me on these things sometime afterward I trust <clears throat> but I'm told that this poem was written about the Battle of Flodden or Flodden Field between England and Scotland in 1513. And it was published in 1808, written, as I said, by Sir Walter Scott. And it's just amazing to me to see this, the parallels between this man, Marmion, and his behavior and the results as well. Evidently, Marmion lost his life in this battle as well as the King of Scotland, James the Fourth. But we read this and we think of this after we have been reading and see, witnessing the behavior of the sons of David. The behavior of the sons, we can't help but echo the words that we hear frequently, like father, like son, or a chip off the old block, because they are definitely imitating their father. I was impressed with God's providence in leading Josh to have us sing Psalm 127. Lo, children are a heritage of Jehovah and the fruit of the womb his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Like so many promises in the scripture, that promise in Proverbs, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a qualified promise. I hope you understand that. That you can train a child up in the way that he ought to go, and he may depart from it. In fact, one of the, trans one of the alternate translations is train up a child according to his way. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we've been looking at David's training up of his children. And I think that we have to say that he trained his children, his sons at least, up according to their way. Allowing them to go the way that they would want to go. But like father, like son. Charles Spurgeon made a comment I remember reading some years ago. And perhaps it uh, sticks in me, not trying to make a pun about arrows, but perhaps it sticks in me because... <clears throat> of my own 
subjective situations with my family and so on. But Spurgeon pointed out that some arrows are crooked. It's God that can make the crooked straight and make the straight crooked. We can't do that. That doesn't mean that we are necessarily without any fault as David was conspicuously with fault in the raising of his sons. But as arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. And Spurgeon is saying, not always. If they're crooked arrows, that rather dulls the happiness. It quenches the happiness of children. And the man could almost wish that he didn't have his quiver full of them, certainly that he had less of them. I think that might have been some of the thoughts of David with regard to what he is witnessing with his sons Amnon and Absalom. They shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gate, these fathers. They will be put to shame if they haven't raised them righteously. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's one that many fathers need to swallow because it's for them, that pill. It's chastening. Even as we see David being chastened in this account uh, of this part of his life. We might, in today's vernacular, call Absalom's murder of Amnon a copycat murder. You've heard that, have you not? A copycat murder. Some murder, usually a series of murders, a serial killer out there, fosters copycat murders, seeking to hide their own evil by blaming it on the person that has started the trend. But we might call Amnon's murder, or Absalom's murder of Amnon, I should say, a copycat murder. How so? Well, what we have read in the, in the last week or so, listen to what we find about that murder and how conspicuous it is like to David's behavior toward Uriah or his method of operation, we might say. What was that method of operation? He sent for Uriah. He sent to Joab, send Uriah to me. Absalom pleaded with his father to let Amnon come to this feast. And he told his henchmen that when Amnon's heart was lifted up with wine when he was beginning to get a little tipsy. When his reactions might not be so quick. His reflexes dulled. Then smite him. Slay him and don't be afraid of any consequences. Have not I told you to do it? We think of Joab knowing what this plot was. He was the courier, the one taking the letter and so on. 
sending Uriah back. And then, of course, after David had failed to get Uriah drunk so that he might convince him to go home to his wife so that that child in her womb might be made the responsibility of Uriah rather than himself. David sends a letter to Joab by the very hand of this faithful servant Uriah. It seems like David's wickedness in this knew no end. So Joab had this letter, set Uriah in the front of the battle, in the heat of the battle, and then withdraw your men. Leave him hanging out to dry. Leave him there to be killed by how many swords or arrows we know not. Isn't that what Amnon did? Wasn't this a copycat murder, this murder of Amnon by Absalom, that is? It's difficult not to imagine David's conscience reflecting upon these ironic similarities or these coincidental similarities. Of course, they're not really ironic. They're not really coincidental. God is behind all this chastening. But to see the parallels between Absalom's behavior toward Amnon reflecting his own behavior toward Uriah, his own murderous heart, being imitated by his son, that crooked arrow in his quiver. We can only imagine. We, we don't really know what must have been buzzing through David's mind, what must have been troubling his heart, his conscience when he reflected on this. This irony of the similarities here. I believe that God has shown us on other occasions in the scriptures that he seems to have God that is, has something of an appreciation of irony, does he not? I hope I can say that reverently. I'm not trying to make God like us, not in any way, which would be impossible, but I'm not trying to speak of him as like us. But he's demonstrated that he seems to have an appreciation for irony. And is it not painful to see our children imitating our sins, even, the, even maybe the littlest ones? Is it not painful to see that they're imitating our bad behavior, they're imitating our sin and our sins? And then on top of that, when they don't imitate anything that they might see in us that's righteous and well, is that not painful? Imagine David's pain then. It's painful to see and feel that culpability. Oh my word, he's imitating me. Unless you don't sin. Father, Unless you don't sin, or perhaps your children were born without sin, you're going to see something of this. And it will be painful. It is painful. Irony, the dictionary tells us, is an event or result that is opposite of what is expected. 
Did you expect when your wife gave birth to that son, anything like this was ever going to take place? And then on top of that, to see that it's a reflection that you have made upon your child that you're witnessing. This irony. Remember the case of Haman in the book of Esther. One of the conspicuous cases of irony, isn't it? Haman hated that child of God, Mordecai, Esther's uncle. And he plotted against him. And he was so certain of the result, the event, or the end, that he had a gallows erected to hang Mordecai, his bitter enemy, upon And you remember the account in the book of Esther how that Amon was foiled in his plot. Foiled by God's providence and ended up being hanged himself on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. His end came upon a gallows that he had erected for Mordecai. Irony in the hands of God is in fact, is it not, most prominent demonstrated at Golgotha. Is not the result of Christ's crucifixion ironic towards Satan? Is the result of Christ's crucifixion what Satan expected as he determined to enter the heart of Judas to to betray the Son of God when he engaged the Jews to be crying out when poor Pontius Pilate was trying his best to find a way to set this man free when these Jews cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Did not the evil one anticipate that the result was going to be when the Christ was lifted up that he would draw men to himself. He didn't anticipate that. How ironic. Satan saw to it that Jesus Christ was lifted up and it turned to his destruction when Christ bruised or crushed the serpent's head. How ironic then that the devil was overthrown by his own devices. And again, this is precisely what happened to Haman, destroyed by his own devices, hanged upon his own gallows. Satan was hanged upon his gallows. And we might add that David was being hanged upon a gallows of his own making as he witnessed the wickedness and the behavior of his own sons, his flesh, the fruit of his loins. And we've already looked at how much he loved them. And that was his downfall, really. His love was excessive. And he's hanged on this gallows that he made himself because of that excessive love and because of his behavior, his sin, 
Now he sees his sons imitating that wickedness. God's chastening hand draws the noose of conscience tighter and tighter around David's neck as he is forced to see the ramifications of his own wickedness in his sons. Yea, let it be said again, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. All the deceit involved in David's sin, all the deceit that he practiced to try to extricate himself from the results, the punishment of that sin. Now he sees his own sons behaving that way. And let us remember that these chastenings are not punishments, but rather are they lessons from God, lessons for his child David to take to heart. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord. And when we are chastened, May it teach us. May we not regard lightly the chastening. May we seek the scriptures and cry unto God the Holy Spirit given us to give us an understanding of the word of God. To learn what these chastenings mean. To learn if they are actually chastenings to be applied to us because of some sin or if they are not. But God forbid that we should regard lightly the chastening of the Lord. These were lessons for God's child, David. These were not lessons meant for Absalom. Neither had he any interest in them. I don't mean that he wasn't interested in them. I mean he didn't have any interest in them because he was not a child of God. His sole interest was toward himself. We read the beginning of this passage. But Absalom fled. He left the presence of his father David. He left the court of his father David. He went out from the presence of his father. He went in the way of Cain, did he not? When Cain went out from the presence of God. David went, or Absalom went out. In a very real sense, from the presence of God, he went out leaving the people of God. He went in the way of Cain. After Cain murdered his brother Abel and his subsequent debate, if we can call it that, with God, over the matter, we are told that he went out from the presence of Jehovah and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. He began another line of people, another seed. Woe unto them, Jude has said, speaking of sinners that went the way in the way of Cain. Woe unto them. Woe unto Absalom. Woe unto these that follow the path trodden by Cain. Absalom ran to Grandpa. This king of Geshur was his grandfather, Maacah's father. 
his mother Mayaka's father. He ran to grandpa. Of course, we never see anything like that in our day, do we? The kids running to grandpa or grandma for protection when they've done something wrong. Until I was 10, my family lived next door to my grandparents. I tell you that it happens quite often. Children running to grandpa, don't be such a grandpa. Don't be such a grandma when the opportunity presents itself to you. Grandparents can easily enjoy being a refuge for their grandchildren. It's hard to disguise the pleasure when the little grandson or granddaughter comes running to you. Help, Grandpa. I think Daddy might be spanking me soon. Help, Grandma. Don't, don't be their refuge, grandparents. Just as Cain went out from the presence of Jehovah, so Absalom flees to Geshur, to Grandpa. And it's difficult not trying to be that friendly old guy <laughs> or that friendly old woman to your grandchildren. Made me think of that bumper sticker, plaque or whatever it is, that if I'd known grandchildren were gonna be so much fun, I'd had them first. Be careful, be careful. I think that grandpa in this text that we're looking at, Absalom fleeing to his grandfather, of course it doesn't say grandfather, but that's who he is. And I think that this individual is figurative or typical here of the world. Absalom fled to the world, he turned to the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, he turned to the world fleeing from perhaps the righteous indignation of his father. He didn't really have any guarantee that David was going to be as lenient toward him as he was toward Amnon. So Absalom ran to Grandpa, away from the presence, away from the community of God's people to the world. What does the presence of God mean to us? What is it to go out from the presence of God? What does the presence of God mean to us? Can we readily, can we easily go out from it? Like Adam and Eve went and hid in the garden. Adam and Eve went and tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. Can we easily hide from the presence of Jehovah? Can we run Flee to Tarshish like Jonah? Or to Nod like Cain? Remember those sailors that said to Jonah, What is this that thou hast done? This storm was brought upon their ship. Trying everything possible, they couldn't save it. And they recognized that Jonah was the problem. That guy down in the below, sleeping not paying any attention. What is this thou hast done? And he told them he was fleeing. 
to Tarshish, fleeing from his responsibility. Remember how that they threw him overboard. And to Jonah's credit, he told them to throw him overboard. They threw him overboard and he was swallowed by a great fish. Young people all know that story. Swallowed by a great fish. You remember regarding the presence of God when Jacob was fleeing from Esau and he had that occasion, that vision of the angel standing at the top of that ladder that ascended into heaven. And when he awoke from that vision, what did he say? Surely God is in this place. In Genesis 28, 16 and following, surely God is in this place. He recognized the presence of God. He awoke out of sleep. Perhaps we need to wake out of sleep. Perhaps there are occasions in our lives when we need to awaken out of sleep. The sleep of death, perhaps. Or the sleep that leads to death. The sleep that leads to spiritual death. Perhaps we need to strive to know the presence of God as Jacob knew it. So that we could say, surely God is in this place. Do we not gather together as the people of God, praying and depending on God's promise to meet with us, that we might enjoy his presence and being in his presence. One of the most astounding, one of the most wrenching accounts, I believe it's fair to say of one seeing God is that in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up in his train, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. What an experience. What an experience. Did he start jumping up and down and saying, happy, happy, happy. All the time, time, time. He saw God. Then said I, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, Jehovah of hosts. This was a face-to-face encounter. And we believe that he saw Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, because of what we read about this scripture in John chapter 12.
that Isaiah spoke of Christ. And we are reminded immediately of that encounter that John himself, the writer of that gospel, had in the Revelation in the first chapter when he saw Christ. Read that. When he saw Christ, he fell down as one dead. What an encounter. Oh, that we might have an encounter, something like that, Something like that, I say, because I don't believe we could bear that, that Isaiah saw or that John saw, but something like that, that we might know that we have met with God when we leave this building. Reflect often upon those in the Old Testament that, that were confronted by God, if we can put it that way. Remember Moses in Exodus 3, when he saw and he turned to see that burning bush, what's going on? Again, it was the angel of Jehovah in the bush. But what did he tell him? Take the shoes from off your feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. Manoah was mentioned Thursday night in class in Judges 13. Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson, they had a visit from the angel of Jehovah. And they made him a meal and he consumed it and ascended in a flame and they knew who had been speaking with them. And again, John had that glorious encounter that he describes in the first chapter of the Revelation. But what is it? to desire to go out from the presence of God. We seek the presence of God. We strive for the presence of God. When we open our Bibles, we desire to worship God. We desire to know something of his presence as we read about him, as we read about his son, as we read about God the Holy Spirit, as we read about our terrible plight that we have been rescued from through his covenant love and through the blood of his son. We desire to be aware of the presence of God on those occasions, do we not? But what about those that are unsaved? What about those who are still walking the face of this earth with their Adam's heart? The heart of their first parents and not a new heart regenerated by God the Holy Spirit. What about them? How many of our kinsmen according to the flesh, are even now attempting, like Absalom, to flee from the presence of God. How do you know that? Because you try to talk to them about God. You try to talk to them about Jesus Christ. And how long will they remain in your presence? How many of them imagine that they can cover themselves with some sort of fig leaves? of their own devising, their own works, if you will. Do they not necessarily through that expose that they think that they can hide from God by going to the land of Nod, perhaps? By fleeing to Tarshish, perhaps? Does not natural man think that he can hide from God? Throughout the scriptures we discover this. Natural man. You and I, before we were regenerated, thought we could hide from God. 
Anyone in this room that has not experienced the new birth thinks that they can hide from God. Maybe you're hiding from God right now in some way or some manner, some fashion. Plugging your ears. Why is it that we see I can't speak of men's clubs, I've never been in one, praise God. But why is it that we see bars, and I'm talking about pubs, bars, and so-called men's clubs having no windows in the building? They don't want the light to come in. They want people to be comfortable in their darkness. Is it not that men love darkness rather than the light? Is that not why they flee from the presence of God? Do they not imagine that in these buildings I've described that they are hiding unseen from God, that he can't see them there? They're kind of like ostriches. They're sticking their head in the sand, thinking that because they can't see anything, because their head's below the level of the sand that God can't see them. May God be pleased to intersect their flight from him by sending a great fish, as it were, to swallow them up, to bring them to repentance, to bring them to confession and faith in Jesus Christ. To cause them to cry out from the belly of that fish as Jonah cried out. Yet hast thou brought up my life from the pit, O Jehovah my God. And then a few verses later, salvation is of Jehovah, a sovereign God, a perfectly holy God. Salvation only comes through him. This is what Absalom is doing, you see, fleeing from the presence of God, imitating Cain, Imitating Adam and Eve, trying to hide himself from the truth. Absalom should have read his father's blessed composition, Psalm 139. Absalom should have read it. Perhaps he did. But we haven't been encouraged in this study to imagine that Absalom was, or I should say that David was teaching his sons as he ought and that they were subjected to these truths. But Absalom should have read this composition, Psalm 139 and verse 7 and and these few verses, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? The answer, of course, unspoken is, I can't go anywhere from God's Holy Spirit. I can't hide from God. Whither shall I flee from thy presence? It's impossible. If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overwhelm me, and the light about me shall be night, even the darkness hideth not from thee. But the light, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. 
I can't hide from thee. I can't hide from you, God. Absalom may have found out I can't hide from you. In Geshur, I can't hide from you. In Grandpa's house. And other men today, I can't hide from you in that bar. I can't hide from you in that brothel. I can't hide from you. David teaching the omnipresence and the omniscience of God. Oh, Absalom should have read those words. Regarding that psalm, Franz Delich, or Delich says in this psalm what the preceding psalm, that is Psalm 138, Delich says in the preceding psalm, it says in verse 6 that it comes to be carried into effect in this Psalm 139. In that verse 6 of 138 says, For though Jehovah is high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the haughty he knoweth from afar. He had respect unto his child. He had respect unto lowly David. He had respect unto his confession, his repentance of sin. That lowliness evidenced in that Psalm, Psalm 51. God had respect unto that lowliness. But the haughty, the Absaloms, he knoweth from afar. But he knows them. He knows where they are. They can't hide from him. Simply put, Psalm 139 is, an, is encouragement to David's. You know what I mean? Those in David's situation here. It's an encouragement to David's, but it should bring Absalom's into much anxiety. No one can hide from God. Not Adam, not Cain, not Jonah. Neither can you, and neither can I. You can make fig leaves, try your works, try your devisings. You can make fig leaves, you can go to Nod, you can flee to Tarshish, you can go to Grandpa. You can't hide. You can't hide from God. This truth is better expressed, not better than the scriptures, but speaking of Psalm 139. Spurgeon wrote these words. Like a lighthouse, this holy song casts a clear beam even to the uttermost parts of the sea and warns us against, listen, warns us against that practical atheism. Oh, you don't think you're an atheist. You don't claim you're an atheist. But if you think you can hide from God, you are a practical atheist. which ignores the presence of God and so makes shipwreck of the soul. I think before we willfully commit any sin that we have to behave that way. We have to somehow convince ourselves that God doesn't see what we're about to do. We must somehow convince ourselves that we can hide it from God. And thus we become practical Atheists. Atheists in practice. Denying God's omniscience. Denying God's omnipresence. Denying the presence of God. And so going the way of Absalom. 
going the way of Adam and Eve when they sinned, going the way of Cain, or fleeing under Tarshish. May God help us to glory and enjoy the presence of God and never to be found fleeing from it as this Absalom. But in spite of the terrible sins, to be clinging as David clinged, clung, sorry, as David was clinging to God. And yet even then it wasn't David's clinging to God, but God's clinging to him that kept him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we thank thee today that we know that one of thy names is the Father of mercies. For we stand in desperate need of thy mercy as well as thy love. And our Father, we pray that thou would put thy fear in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. Just stand, please, for the benediction. <clears throat> From Isaiah 43 in the second and third verse, verses. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Jehovah thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Amen.